So if you've made any New Year's resolutions yet, you may want to consider that probably for most of us, what we need to do is not be adding new resolutions, but to continue in what we know we should be doing. So pull out your list from last year and see, hey, am I continuing to do what God has already laid on my heart to do from his word, what I know I should be about? And that's what Paul was doing to Timothy, saying, continue on with what you know is true. We see that in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and so where we've been, uh, to pick up where we left off back in November, which is um, a while to go back, but I was reading about uh, the reformer John Calvin in the 1500s. He went into exile for three years from his church in Geneva, and when he came back, he didn't say anything about where he'd been. He just picked up where he left off. He like left off in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. He picked up Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, and kept going on after three years. So we go, we go back about six weeks, and we pick up from 2 Timothy chapter 3. But what what's going on in Timothy is Paul is writing to his chief primary disciple, Timothy. Paul's in prison, and he knows his time is short. So he's trying to get Timothy prepared to take on fully the ministry at the church in Ephesus that he founded. And the challenge Timothy faces there is due to some false teachers. And the false teachers had an interesting concoction of uh, Old Testament laws mixed with some genealogies, mixed with some myths, mixed with some asceticism. Basically, they had some restrictive uh, ideas about forbidding marriage and not eating certain foods. And uh, they had a distorted teaching of the resurrection. So, And, and they topped all that off with a uh, word battles that produced quarrels and controversies. So they, they were very controversial. They got in a lot of word battles, and they, they had just a, a mix, hodgepodge of, of false teaching mixed with some true teaching, which uh, was creating a lot of problems in the church. So this was Timothy's job was to straighten this situation out. Paul probably felt pretty good he was in prison not having to mess with that. Just put Timothy up to the job, put Timothy up to the task. So Paul calls Timothy to suffer for the gospel and to hold to the pattern of sound, healthy words because Paul, as the apostle of the, that God had entrusted him, the, the message of the gospel, he was calling Timothy to rightly handle the word of truth. And then in chapter 3, verses 1 to 9, where we were last time, Paul said there would be difficult days coming. Times of difficulty are coming. And he said those difficult times would be characterized by people being lovers of self, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, and that the false teachers would continue to ensnare people who were loaded down with sins who never really come to the, not know the truth of the gospel. They don't get set free from their sins because they're not getting the truth of the gospel, so that, that's just going to continue to create problems. So Paul says to Timothy, fix this. So I'm going to ask you to stand while we read from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 to 17. And Paul writes, You, however, Timothy, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from all the, all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, 
knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in, in Christ Jesus. All Scripture, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Father, thank you that you've given us your breathed word, your word that you ensured we would have in all of its truth that we need to live by, that revealing to us Christ and our need of him and how to live for him. So clear out, clear out the clutter from our hearts and our minds this morning. We do thank you, Father, that as the way that we, we mark time, we're entering into a new, a new year with new opportunities to serve you and to grow in you. So we ask that you would cause that process to be effective this morning as your spirit teaches us and reveals to us more of Christ's goodness and his truth. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. So when Paul says in verse 10, you, however, he's contrasting Timothy to the false teachers. They oppose the truth and they have a false form of godliness. They, they have sort of a form of godliness, but they don't have the true thing. Timothy has followed Paul's teaching and life example, and that's good because Paul's an apostle and he's got the truth. And uh, Timothy, Paul says, you've followed my teaching. He's, he's diligently investigated in detail. So he's been tracking Paul's every move and tracking Paul's lifestyle and tracking Paul's writings. And he's been clinging to Paul and, and learning from Paul. He's followed Paul's conduct as well as his teaching, which is important because we, we do need teaching so we know what God has provided for us and what he requires of us. But we really grow by seeing living examples of, of God's truth being lived out. So that's what Timothy has been seeing in Paul, his conduct. And he also follows Paul's aim in life. So not only how Paul morally conducts his life, but, but Paul's purpose in life, uh, his, his, his um, motivations, how Paul was driven to do what he did. Paul was single-mindedly committed to Christ. He, he said elsewhere, I count my life of no value to myself so that I may finish my course in the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. So he said, this is what my life is for. Nothing else matters compared to that. So he, he was very clear, very driven for, for that purpose. He, um, his, he followed Paul's faith, how Paul trusted God in his word. Like, like, Paul, how do you trust God in hard circumstances? I need to see that lived out. How do you do that? How do you go about doing that? He said, you, you followed my patience, Timothy. Just Timothy's asking, how do you have peace when the pressure is on or when you're being harassed or in putting up with annoying people? They did have annoying people back then, too. So how do you do that, Paul? He said, you follow my love. What are the ways you love others as Christ has loved you? How do you love your enemies, Paul? Because you've got a lot of them, so how do you do that? My steadfastness. So in talking about Paul's steadfastness, his endurance, he really sets up for what, what Paul brings up in verse 11, which is his perseverance and his enduring persecution and suffering. So we'll look at verse 11 where Paul brings up those last two. These are not so much character qualities as they are. This is what Paul is doing. He's, he's being persecuted and he's, and he's suffering. And that's one of his primary purposes for this letter to Timothy is to encourage him to join him in suffering for the gospel because he knows that apart from suffering, 
the gospel is not going to make progress. And the reason it's not going to make progress and, and be kept pure is because there's constant resistance to the gospel. People are, were born resistant to the gospel. We're born in a gospel-resistant state. None of us are more open to the gospel than others. We're all dead set against it. And, and only when the gospel graciously enters our hearts and our minds through hearing it uh, do we embrace Christ. So there's constant resistance to the gospel. This is what's going on in Ephesus. This is why Paul needs to strengthen Timothy's willingness to suffer. So he reminds Timothy of what he knows of his sufferings. Timothy had learned about Paul's persecutions that occurred during his first missionary journey before, before Timothy joined Paul's ministry team. So he's aware of the risks. He knew what, what he was getting into, and he signed on with Paul, as well as God's ability to rescue. So Paul said, yeah, I, I suffered a lot, but, I, but God also delivered me. So far, God has delivered me out of every one of the persecutions I've faced. And so he, he talks about his time in Antioch. That's at the end of Acts 13. Paul and Barnabas were received well at first, but a group of uh, opposing Jews showed up and stirred up the persecution against them and ran them out of the city. So from there they went to, uh, and you read this in Acts chapter 14, they went to Iconium and stayed there for a long time, but those who were opposed to their message attempted to stone them. So they thought, well, we don't want to get stoned, so we'll leave, and we'll go to Lystra. So they went to Lystra. And in Lystra, uh, they, Paul was able to heal a crippled man, and they, they said that Paul and Barnabas were gods. So, hey, you guys are gods. Wow, come join. I mean, hang around here for a while. But then the opposing crowd showed up again. Who The crowd's been chasing him wherever they go and stirs up the crowd against them, and they stone Paul, and they take him as dead and, and throw him outside the city, left him for dead. But he got better, and he came back to life. He kept going. He's like the Energizer Bunny, just keeps going. I don't know if the Energizer Bunny is still energized or still a thing, but but Paul was better than that. Even though Paul endured persecutions and sufferings, yet the Lord had delivered him out of them all. Though God doesn't keep us from all persecution and suffering, he is sovereign over the circumstances. So whatever your mess is in, know that God is in the circumstances. He's not letting it loose. He's not forgetting about you. He's not letting things fly off the handle. He's, he's got it under control, however hard it is. I'm reading a biography of Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor was the founder of China Inland Missions back in the mid-1800s. And uh, it's quite amazing how much suffering they went through to get to the inland provinces of China. So after some decades of just just like a handful, like Hudson and his wife died, and he had many kids that died, and many other missionaries got sick and died. And they had just a handful of them. They, they, they actually started building up a, quite a number who were applying, answering the call to go to China. And so um, here is what uh, Hudson began replying with a, a letter. If you applied for the China Inland Mission, this is what you would get. If you want hard work and little appreciation of it, if you value God's approval more than you fear man's disapproval, if you are prepared, if need be, to seal your testimony with your blood, and perhaps oftentimes to take joyfully the spoiling of your goods or the stealing of your stuff, you may count on a harvest of souls here and a crown of glory that does not fade away, and the master's well done. If after prayerfully considering the matter you still feel drawn to engage in such work, 
I should be only too glad to hear from you. So how's that for a, uh, just a real motivating letter? Yeah, I want to join the China Inland Mission. And many people did, and they, they had great progress in China in those days. You say, well, that's for extreme followers of Jesus. Like, I like to watch sports on TV, but I don't like to do extreme sports. So I, I like to hear about these things, but I don't like to do it. Well, Paul says in verse 12, actually, nobody gets off the hook. Verse 12 says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So notice he doesn't say just all Christians. He doesn't say all who say they believe in Jesus will be persecuted. He says all who desire to live in a godly manner in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So Paul is specifically contrasting those who live a godly life in Christ with the false teachers that were there who were um, not living that way. They lived in a safe way. They lived in a way that was acceptable to the culture, and they, they, uh, they shaved off the rough edges of Christian doctrine that didn't appeal to the culture in order to, to, to not be persecuted. Sometimes you hear people say things like this. If we were just more like Jesus, more people would like us. Now, there is some truth in that, but there's equally the truth that Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me first. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So uh, being like Jesus, sometimes people like it. But when Jesus bumps up against the things that you prize and you don't want to give up, then they don't like it. So it's not necessarily a win in terms of uh, people liking you to, to be like Jesus. You can label yourself a Christian. But if you're not living a godly life that is shaped by trust and trust in and obedience to Christ, then you're not going to be persecuted. So if you're just trying to avoid persecution, then that's how you do it. You don't live a godly life in Christ. How you're persecuted for living godly in Christ is a matter of where you live and, and when. So different ages and stages of different cultures have different levels of persecution. Um, it, it may be relatively minor or it may be severe. It may be sneering and mocking. It may be rejection in family or social circles. It may mean the dreaded eyeball rolling. Oh, there he goes again. And, and that may be like, that's what we get a lot in the U.S. You can be sued sometimes for like um, not doing things people like. Like oh, I won't go, go further with it, but, but there are, we do run into hassles in this country, even, even in this once Christianized nation. In some countries, you can be almost totally cut off from getting a job, disowned by your family. You can be imprisoned. You can be physically assaulted or killed. So in one country, the Marxist rebels said to a man named Nicholas, stop preaching about Jesus. Nicholas kept preaching about Jesus, so they cut his head off. So there are severe forms of persecution. There are less severe forms of persecution. That's why Jesus said we need to count the cost of being his disciple. How much rejection or persecution are you willing to endure for being loyal to him? And is Jesus worth it? And we, all, we don't know always how we're going to respond to it until we face it. Because to think about these things, hey, I could never go through that. But if you're following, sticking closely with Jesus, he gives you the grace in the moment. And then in verse 13, 
Paul says, in contrast to those who are living godly in Christ are evil people and imposters. Now, evil people are just living godless lives and not making any pretense of godliness. Imposters are pretending godliness. They're pretending to be Christians. They're pretending to be spiritual or religious. But they're deceivers. They're hypocrites. They're charlatans. And Paul says they will go from bad to worse. Not only are they deceiving others with false religiosity, they're being deceived. Every generation faces pressures to revise, to revamp, or jettison certain truths that that the world sees as unacceptable and intolerable. It often starts with the desire to be relevant and and reach people. So we we want people to be able to hear the gospel, and so we, hey, if I say this, they're going to be offended. So we we chuck this, we chuck that, and pretty soon we shave down to the gospel is no longer the gospel. So it starts out with an okay motivation, a good motivation, but but where we start shaving off truth, it, it, we lose the gospel. And then we can't eternally help people. So in our days, uh, one of the hot areas of, of we're being pressured to revise is the biblical teaching on marriage and sexuality. So not surprisingly, a lot of there are a number of Christian teachers who are suddenly beginning to realize, hey, the church has been wrong for centuries about this, and so we need to change what we believe. We need to make it more acceptable for the culture. So, and you compromise in that area, and oftentimes it leads to further compromises. The result is that the deceived person, although they maintain a shell of Christianity, no longer believes its essential truths. So I think of um, a guy named Rob Bell, who pastored a a big church in Michigan, who was a a big star on the evangelical scene, um, hip, cool pastor, and he began jettisoning just pieces of, of Christian essential truth, and now he's, he's left that church and he's, he's on the, the Oprah circuit. So you, where you lose, you begin to lose pieces of, of the gospel, you, you eventually can end up giving up the whole thing. But as he says in verse 14, as for you, so once again, he keeps saying, as for you, Timothy, not being like these false teachers, as for you, don't be deceived. Don't buy into whatever sounds new and innovative, and so lead your hearers into worldly wisdom and falsehood. But continue, 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 remain, abide, live in what you have learned and firmly believed and have become convinced of. Because you know from whom you learned them, you who were discipled by who you were discipled by. Timothy had learned the truth of Scripture from his grandma Lois and his mom Eunice. So Lois and Eunice did a good job in getting Timothy grounded in the faith. And uh, he's also been discipled by Paul. And so you might think if you're a grandma, if you're a mom, are you discipling the next um, Timothy? Or like a, a more recent Timothy, like Tim Keller? Or Elizabeth Elliot, who was a missionary down in Central America? Who are you discipling? Biblical truth gets built into our lives with greater permanence and conviction when the church is functioning as a disciple-making community. Just through relationships, through live, living, speaking, breathing, gospel, Jesus people, we learn the gospel and we get grounded in because we see living examples of it. So continue in, remain in, abide in, 
live in, stand your ground in what you have heard and, and firmly believed. Don't let the desires for acceptance, being liked, being cool, avoiding rejection and persecution lead you to forsake the truth. And consider the faith and life of those who have invested in you. So as you, you think back in your past, who have been the people that have impacted you? And are you going to turn your back on the truth that they have lived for, that they, they invested in you? And Paul goes on in verse 15 and says, And from, from childhood, Timothy, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. So he's talking about the Old Testament, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So since Christ has come, it's clear, even more clear now, I mean, even there in those early days, Paul was saying it's clear that the Old Testament was pointing to Jesus. They, they were to be fulfilled, the Old Testament scriptures were to be fulfilled and were preparatory to make people wise for salvation through faith in Christ. So Timothy was already prepared for it by being grounded in the Old Testament for, for faith in Jesus. So he can have confidence that he has been grounded in God's unfolding, progressive revelation Salvation through faith in Christ is not a new invention. It wasn't a religious fad in those days. It's not now. It's, it's been God's purpose all along. He's been gradually unfolding it and revealing it in its maximum state through Jesus Christ. Of course, now that we have the New Testament, the scriptures are all the more able to lead us to salvation through faith in Christ. So we don't need other gimmicks to bring people to Jesus. We just need the, the scripture. So there's a, a story of a missionary who was seeking to share Jesus with, with people. He had some copies of the New Testament with him. So he had little New Testaments. He was trying to share with a man, share Jesus with a man. He was showing him the scripture in one of the New Testaments he had. And the man said, "Why those pages are fine and thin. They would make great to, a paper to roll cigarettes with. So the, the missionary said to him, well, if I give you one of these New Testaments, I will, give, I will give you one of these New Testaments if you promise to read them before you smoke them. So he said, okay. And he said, okay, you promise to read the Scripture before you smoke it? Yes. So a week or two later, the missionary sees the man, and he said, well, did you read any of the Bible that I gave you, any of the New Testament? And the, the, the man said, yep, I smoked my way through Matthew, and I smoked my way through Mark, and I smoked my way through Luke, and I started in John, and when I got to 316, I got it. And now he's being trained to be a pastor. He had to be a smoking good pastor, huh? Yeah. One pun, one pun, and one pun and done. And then Paul says to Timothy, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Scripture is God-breathed. Some translations translate this as all Scripture is inspired by God, and that's fine, except when we hear that English word inspired, we tend to think, that, well, that God just sort of gave people a creative um, spark, or, or that God made the Bible inspiring to us. And it is, but, but it's a better translation, I think, God breathed, because the word in the Greek, okay, here's your Greek lesson for the day, theopneustos, theopneustos, theo, God, Nustos, breath. It's God breathed. It's, it's God's breathed through his Holy Spirit, the truth into the, the writers. And, and it's not that they went into a trance and became robots and just started writing, but God so worked in them so that what they wrote was from him. It's the truth that he wanted us to have come through the grid of their personalities, through their culture, through the, through the times they were in, through the circumstances they were in. 
They were God breathed. It's the scriptures are God's breathed word to us. It's like Peter says in in Second Peter one. Know this first of all that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. It's not something they dreamed up. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And Paul says that because all Scripture is breathed out by God, it's profitable. We've got the God-breathed Word. It's useful. What's it useful for? Well, it's, it's useful for teaching, for teaching truth. We're not just teaching human wisdom. We're teaching the words of the living God. And <clears throat> history shows that where churches or institutions or um, pastors or denominations give up believing that the Scriptures are truly the Word of God, they, they lose the whole thing. They have nothing different to say than, than you can get anywhere else. So it's not only profitable for teaching that what we are to believe, it's profitable for, profitable for reproof. It corrects us. It, it, it shows us where we're wrong, where we have wrong beliefs. It, it exposes our false beliefs or where we're not believing true beliefs. The Scriptures are profitable for correction. They correct ungodly behavior. And they're profitable for correction, not just because they teach us the facts of this is right and this is wrong. They do do that. But they're profitable for correction because it's profitable for conversion. It converts us out of our old life and gives us the the heart and the capacity to live a a new life. So there was an American doing um, mission work among native peoples in Guatemala. And uh, so he he participated in a a worship service there, and it it went on, like started at two, went on to three, went to four, went to five, went to six, and it went for hours on into the night. And uh, so uh, Tomas, who was one of the the, the Christians there, said, do you want to know why we worship for hours? He said, well, I was a drunkard. I was a wife beater. I was a criminal. And I heard... The word of God. I heard, and it's like, this is the scripture that he heard. It's from John 10. No one can snatch, this Jesus talking, no one can snatch my sheep out of my hand. He heard that and he was converted. Like the word of God just pierced through his darkness and, and brought him to salvation in Christ. So because the scriptures are profitable for conversion, they're profitable for correction. And I just need to ask, are, are you converted? Is everybody in this room converted? That's an old word. We don't use that very much anymore. But, but have you been so impacted by Jesus that he has transformed your life? Or do you live in the old way? It's good to consider, am I really converted to Jesus? Or am I just buying into a religious shell? God wasn't wasting his breath when he led the authors of Scripture to write what they did. It's all profitable in some way for shaping our hearts and minds for godliness. The last thing he says is profitable for training or educating in righteousness. So good resolution is get trained in righteousness this year. And, and because he says it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that tells us what the scripture is for. It tells us that we need what it's for. This is what we need. We need to be taught we need to be reproved, we need to be corrected, and we need to be trained in righteousness. So that's why we have Bibles. And we get that in Jesus. And he, he finally says in verse 17, all scripture is 
breathed and profitable that the person of God may be complete. And I should have mentioned that all means all. Scripture is profitable. Leviticus, genealogies, those super pristine pages in your Bible, if you still have a paper Bible, that you've never cracked that are still stuck together, are still profitable. So all Scripture, the whole big storyline, as well as down to the pieces, down to the verses that, that you are familiar with. It's profitable that the person of God, the man of God, the woman of God, the boy or girl of God may be complete or competent or qualified, equipped for every good work. The God-breathed scriptures are useful that you may be fully qualified for every good work. Do you read your Bibles? Listen to sermons? Participate in small group studies with the purpose and the expectation? Do you expect that when you are reading your Bible, when you're listening to a sermon, when you're participating in a small group study, that by what you study, by what you learn, by what you hear and ponder, you're, you're being made complete, competent, equipped, fully qualified for every good work? Is that what you go to the Bible for, and that, do you expect it to do that for you? I mean, that's what it says it's for, and it will do it. But it helps if we really go after it with that intentionality. You say, well, I don't read my Bible, but I, I read Christian books. Well, let me encourage you, put the Bible at the top of your reading list. And if you have to choose between one or the other, choose the Bible over even reading Christian books. Or I might even say especially reading Christian books. Some of them are not very good. Let me just back up. Do Do you read your Bibles? Let me back up further. Do you read? Because the statistics say 27% of Americans last year did not read one book. So do you read something more than text, phone text, blogs? Newspaper, novels, read your Bibles. You need it. There's no other book that has been breathed out by God. You say, well, I don't get that much out of it. Well, by faith, knowing that the Bible is the God-breathed word and is profitable for growing you in godly belief and behavior, just keep plodding through it. Reading it, trusting that God is working his word in and through you. It's like you're going to start a healthy diet. You're going to start a healthy exercise program. Well, I tried it once. For a couple of days, it didn't work. That's You know you need to be on it for months to really see good results, and it's really for life, so it's not just something to go for the short run. So keep in the Word, and not just reading it, but interacting with it in group settings as well. Pray, open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of your word. Pray, God, show me Jesus. Thank him for it. Even if you, don't, if you didn't get a jolt reading it, say, God, thank you that I know your, work is at work, your, your word is at work in me, even though I didn't feel anything. But one good way to get after the truth is to do observation, interpretation, application. So, Observation. What did I just read? What does it say? So don't, don't, don't jump to how to supply, but start. What did I just read? What does it say? Unpack it. And then what does it mean by what it said? What did it mean then to them? And how, how can I take that to 
and, and see what it means for me now. And how does it apply, how does, this, does it apply to my life now? Ask, what does this teach me about God? What does this teach me about people, myself, about Christ, about God's plan of salvation? Is there a promise to believe or command to obey? Is there a sin need to repent of? And thank God for what you're reading. And just so, so for each day, what is one thing God's Word is giving me to trust in, to meditate on, or to do? If you can do that and, and nail that down at the beginning of the day, preferably, when, you, when your mind is still coming out of the coffee fog, then you're off to a good start. Jesus said we are to make disciples by teaching them to observe and obey everything he has commanded. So we have our work as the church, not just, not just pastors, but, but we as the church have our work cut out for us. We, we, we are responsible to teach one another everything that Jesus commanded us. So uh, the curriculum is pretty challenging. In Ephesians 4, it does say that leaders are to equip God's people for the work of ministry for every good work. But Paul says the God-breathed scriptures are sufficient to fully equip you for the work God has for you. So um, our job is to get the Word of God into you. And it's good to read through the Bible in a year. I mean, that's great to do that. And we have, there are paper plans, there are U version plans, um, Bible project plans. Go online, you can see that. We've got the paper version of the Bible project plan out on the, on the, in the uh, information desk as well. Um, but the question is not how many times have you been through the Word of God, but how many times has the Word of God been through you? So what's your plan for being taught, reproved, corrected, and trained in God's Word this year? Grab a friend, read the Bible with him. Continue in what you've learned. I'm going to pray for us. Father, your word is a living word. It's living and active. It's sharper than two-edged sword. It's sharper than laser scalpel. It's sh- it, it exposes the truth of the intentions of our hearts. It penetrates into the deepest part of our inmost being and shows us the truth about who we are and who you are. We're thankful, Father, that that the main thing the Bible does for us is shows us Jesus. From Genesis to Revelation, it's a book about him and about our need for him and about all he's provided for us. So we're not just talking about, we don't want to, we're not just talking about getting big, thick heads full of knowledge. We're talking about truth that is translated into Jesus-like transformation in our lives. So would you graciously grant us, Father, to, to make progress this year, all of us together, as Harvest Community Church. Help us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.